Father God, as we study your word, we ask that you speak to each one of us, that we may hear what you want us to hear, what you are saying to us, so that we may go from this place ready to fulfill your will and your holy purposes at this good season of, e of Christmas. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a story which is a true story, and I may have told it to you before, forgive me if I have, but it's a good story. And it's about a letter which appeared some years ago in one of our national newspapers. And it went something like this. Dear Sirs, I've been going to church for 30 years, and in all that time I've heard thousands of sermons, and I cannot remember any of them, so I've stopped going to church. Well, there was quite a correspondence that followed that, as you might imagine, letters that went backwards and forwards, for and against. And the correspondence was brought to an end by this letter. Dear Sirs, I have been married to my wife for 30 years. And in all that time, she has cooked me thousands of meals. And I cannot remember any of them. But I do know without those meals, I would be dead. I find that very comforting. Because I confess to you that I find it difficult to remember sermons. I've preached a lot of sermons, and I am not sure I can remember any of them. I go to sometimes, sometimes go to my notes or to a script, and blow me, I simply cannot remember what on earth I was talking about. <laughs> I wonder if you're like me. And what we will remember from this text, what we will remember from this sermon. Now, of course, when we listen to a sermon, when we study a text, when we study the scriptures, we have to be self-disciplined. We need to be attentive with open hearts and open minds, a critical mind indeed. But it's not just us. The Holy Spirit, we believe, works in us when we read a text of Scripture and we, when we hear Scripture uh, ex um, proclaimed and taught. It's the Word of God and in a real sense, the Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God, and he will lay its truth in our hearts. He will help us to understand it. He will give us a message. But of course, we hear different things. And if I were to ask you when we leave the building uh, at the end of the morning what it was that you took out of this text and out of this sermon, I'm sure we'd have a whole lot of very different things. Well, this by way of... Uh, a start. Last week, as we've heard, we looked at the great song of Christmas, the song that we call the Magnificat, Mary's song. Young Mary, to whom it was announced by the angel Gabriel that she would be the bearer of the Son of God, and she's overwhelmed with praise and with worship to God, her Savior. Verses 46 and 47 again of our text. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And she goes on in the song as we know and as we heard it was 
um, given again to the children, that she proclaims a kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is an upside-down revolutionary kingdom, a kingdom of power and a kingdom of authority. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich empty away. It is revolutionary in its spiritual, political, social, and economic implications. And Lewis gave us a great sermon on it last week. And now we come to the second of the great Christmas songs, the song of Zechariah. It's a very different song, but it has some elements the same as the Magnificat. Zechariah is a priest, a priest in the temple, Jewish, uh, of course, part of the Jewish religious establishment. And a background to the story is that he and his wife Elizabeth are godly and a faithful couple, but they are childless. Look back to the beginning of chapter 1, verse 6, and we pick it up. Both of them are upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well on in years. And the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and he tells him that his wife Elizabeth will give birth to a baby. And Zechariah doubts it. Both he and his wife are so well on in years. They're past the years when normally you would have a child. And because of his doubt, Zechariah becomes dumb. He cannot speak. I think also, possibly, if you look closely at the text, he's deaf as well. And let's look at the story as it unfolds and pick it up from verse 57, because it's quite important we read this passage as the context for Zechariah's song. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. At the birth of his son, Zechariah can speak and his first words are of praise and of worship of God. Like Mary, he's overwhelmed in his song, in his worship. So you see, in Luke's Gospel... The Christmas story has two babies. There's the baby Jesus, of course, and there's baby John. And Zachariah's song deals with both of them. And we'll now turn to look at his song properly. And I want to begin by saying that it seems to me that Luke stresses right at the outset the importance of this passage. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, all Scripture is God-breathed, as Paul said to Timothy in one of his letters. All Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the very Word of God, the very mind of God, the very heart of God. We know that. But it's emphasized here because it's so important. And Zechariah prophesies. He brings the very word of God to the matters of the immediate moment, but also of the future. He speaks of the future. And the key verse for this whole song, I believe, is verse 68. We had it right at the start of our service. We stood and said it together. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. This is the key verse. All the excitement, all the joy, all the praise, all the worship, all the wonder at Jesus' birth. This is the Christmas story. We'll be hearing about it over these next two weeks and celebrating it. But there's also here wonder and worship at the birth of John. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Or in the older translations, blessed be the name of the Lord, from which we get the Latin name, the Benedictus, which is often uh, the word that we use with this song of Zechariah. And surprisingly, Zechariah does not immediately praise and worship God for the birth of his son, John, but for Jesus. For Jesus. And the reason is clear in this verse, because he has come and redeemed his people. Now we encounter a, a literary device here, or a rhetorical device, which we encounter at various parts of the Bible, various parts of Scripture, whereby an event that's to take place in the future is described as having already taken place. We find this in various parts of the Bible, but we have it here. The technical term is prolepsis. Jesus is not yet born. He's not yet come to his public ministry. The crucifixion and the resurrection lie in the future, and yet Zechariah speaks as if he is already here and he has already performed and accomplished his saving work. Before we look closely at this, can I just make a comment? It seems to me that in this song we have a wonderful confidence statement. There is a confidence, there is an assurance, there is a certainty here. There is a trust in the promises of God. And I think that has something to say to us today, because I think we live in a culture and in a country and even in the church where where there's a growing lack of confidence very often in the gospel and a lack of confidence in the Christian faith. Now, there are many factors that have contributed to that, I think. Some Christians really struggle over some of the foundational beliefs of our faith. For example, that Jesus is, is an historical figure who actually lived that the claims made for him by Christians are that he is the only way to the Father. The Bible is true and reliable. The bodily re resurrection of Jesus is true. Miracles do happen, and so on. There are foundational truths that people struggle over. 
and are really challenged by some outsiders. And then the church itself, the broad church, is regarded with suspicion by many. It's been rocked by scandal in some of its parts. It remains divided over some important issues, such as human sexuality. And then we have the rise of other faiths and the impact that they make on our culture and our society. And it seems to me that militant Islam in part anyway, has contributed to the undermining of religious fundamentalism generally. And so our faith is lacking confidence. And one of the things that we do when we lack confidence is that we internalize our faith. We make it private. We make it a personal thing, an individual thing. And we withdraw from the public space, from the public square. I don't know if you would agree with me, but it does seem to me that that's something that we can see going on around us. Now, that applies to the West, generally speaking. And as chaplain of the Oxford Center for Mission Studies, I encounter students from Asia, from Africa, from South America, who have a very different sense of confidence in the gospel. They have a vitality. They have a faithfulness. They have a liveliness. They have a certainty that in so many regards our own church has lost. And it's as if we need a kind of mission in reverse to be able to take from these students and from these missionaries, as it were, coming to our own country, something of their faithfulness and something of their vitality and something of their trust in the hope that lies in the gospel. And I do find that confidence here in this song of Zechariah. Here's a straw in the wind. I wasn't going to say this, but I think I will. On Thursday, my wife and I went up to London for a, a morning appointment, and we took the chance of spending the rest of the day doing some Christmas shopping and joining the festive crowds in Oxford Street, and we walked pretty well the length of Oxford Street. I think we went into Selfridges and John Lewis and Debenhams and uh, Marks and Spencers. Now, 10 years ago, I think, but certainly 20 years ago, in these shops, you would have heard the Christmas carols you would have heard the carols with their wonderful theology and their wonderful words. You would have been exposed to them as you went and did your shopping. But with the exception of a very small group standing outside of Bond Street playing Christmas carols, we heard nothing. And maybe a straw in the wind, this is a sign of the way that the traditional, the orthodox Christmas is beginning to shift imperceptibly towards a celebration of a winter festival. We need to recover our confidence, and I find in this passage here a wonderful confidence. Verse 68 again, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. Two points of focus. He has come, and he has redeemed his people. He has come, Emmanuel. The incarnation, God taking human form and human flesh. That marvelous statement in the opening of John's gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greek word could equally be translated, he has tabernacled among us. And you remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the sign of God's presence among his people. 
or in a lovely paraphrase in one of the modern translations, the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. I like that. And we sing in the Christmas carol, he came down from, to earth from heaven, who was God and Lord of all. I started by saying how few sermons I remember, but in fact, two weeks ago today, I was with our younger son and his family. They've just moved into a, a, um, a new place just outside Reading, and I took the chance when I was with them of going to the parish church and really heard an excellent sermon from, I took it, from the vicar. And he started by saying that we were all opening the little advent calendar doors. And I'm sure you're busy with your children opening the little doors of the advent uh, calendars. And he took a, as his theme of the sermon, Christmas doors. And the first door was the stable door. The door into the stable where Jesus was born. Now, a stable is a place of some disorder. It's dirty. It's smelly. You wouldn't choose to go there and live there. And yet Jesus did, and he was born there. A sign that he enters our world with all its dirt and its pain and its darkness and its sin. He has come among us. He has come to dwell among us. He's moved into our neighborhood. He's come close to us. And he takes our flesh so that he may redeem our flesh. That's the first point of focus here. He has come, and he has redeemed his people. What a wonderful word redemption is. What does it mean? A month ago, I was asked with a couple of others from the church here to um, try and answer some questions that were being posed by some of our young people from one of our youth groups. And excellent questions they were. And one of the questions that the young people wanted answered was this. Why did Jesus die? That's quite a simple question, but it's a very profound question. And the Bible gives us answers in different ways, different models, as it were, that we can get our hands on to understand this profound truth and this profound mystery. For example, Jesus is a blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And sacrifice is one of the models. Another model is reconciliation. Jesus' death is an act of reconciliation between us and God. Another model is ransom. And we sang about that in one of our songs earlier on in this service. And then there's redemption. Redemption, which is buying back Paying a cost to recover and bring back into your ownership something that was formerly yours. Now, by God's grace, I haven't needed the service of a pawn shop during my life, although you never know. But those of you who have ever used a pawn shop will know that you take some item of value. It might be a camera or a watch or a piece of jewelry. And you hand it over to the shop and they give you a sum of money in exchange. But if you go back to reclaim what is still your property, you have to pay to redeem it. And it's a very simple model and a very simple picture of this profound work that our Lord did for us on the cross. To buy us back, to reclaim us, to acquire us again as his own. He died for our Redemption. 
And what a powerful model that is. So he has come and he has redeemed his people. And this first part of the song goes on to a number of very Jewish references drawn from passages in the Old Testament. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, or we might translate that a mighty saviour in the house of his servant David. Jesus born of the family of David, our mighty saviour. And it was as promised by the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, verse 70, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. And then reference to the fathers and to the covenant sworn to Abraham, verses 72 and 73, to show mercy to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. This is not just who Jesus was, but what he was coming to do. He was coming to rescue He was coming to redeem. He was coming to save. And salvation is Luke's great theme from first chapter to last. And salvation from our enemies. Salvation from our enemies. Who are our enemies? Well, in the Old Testament, the people of God were surrounded by enemies. And the history which is set out in the Old Testament is very much a history of war with neighboring nations. Today we have enemies, enemies in the world of violence and conflict. We prayed for that earlier. We've got enemies in our own nation, in our own culture, corruption, injustice, inequality, homelessness. And this week there's been an emphasis on the radio, at least the bits that I've heard, of violence against women and trafficking of women. We have plenty of enemies. And enemies inside ourselves, our prejudice, our pride, our impatience and intolerance, our selfishness, our greed. Salvation from our enemies, my friends, we need saving and we need rescuing from our enemies in order that we may serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as there was a key verse at the start of our passage here, there's a key verse at the end of the first half, verse 74 to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It's an appeal for Christian living. It's an appeal for a Christian lifestyle. We are to be holy. We are to be righteous. And holiness is better than profanity, and purity is better than impurity, and generosity is better than meanness, truth is better than lies, humility is better than arrogance, godliness is better than ungodliness. And when Jesus comes, he comes as our Redeemer, and he comes with a call that we are to change. We are to live as his followers who believe in him and trust in him. And his promises, we're to live as Christians. And as we live as Christians, so the great hope is that our world will be changed through us, bit by bit, steadily, surely.
The world needs change, and we are called to be the agents of that change in Christ's name. I came across an extraordinary example of how the gospel has power to change just um, a couple of weeks ago from two of our students at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies, husband and wife, who work in, in the Philippines. And for a number of years, they've had a, minist a ministry and a mission to the very um, remote um, rural areas in the Philippines, where um, there are still very primitive people who are looked down upon by all the others. And there's a tribe, uh, the Manyang tribe, and they still practice child sacrifice. A baby that's born disfigured or where the mother dies at birth or extraordinarily, and this was what we were told, where the baby seems to orientate itself towards the west, whether by its head or by its body in some way when it's born, then it's thought to be cursed and it's sacrificed to the spirits. You wouldn't believe that would go on in the 21st century, but it does. But they've taken the gospel to some of these people, and the gospel has made its impact and it's made its transforming influence in the villages that this practice has been abandoned as people have come to Christ. An extraordinary example of the power of the gospel in our world. Well, let's turn to the second half of the song and much more briefly. Zachariah speaks of his son, John. John who will be a prophet. John who will point to Jesus. Verses 76 and 77, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And yes, that's just what John the Baptist does. You'll read in chapter 3 of Luke that John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He prepares the way for Jesus. He points to Jesus by recalling people to their greatest need of repentance and forgiveness. And we need forgiveness. And as we are forgiven, so we need to forgive others. We have peace with God through the cross. That peace is released in each one of us to share that peace with others. And what about this Christmas? Perhaps someone here, some of us, who need to forgive someone else. There's a grudge. There's a resentment. There's a bitterness that we need to confess and we need to forgive. It was interesting hearing from the Vernons how some of the prisoners have been so completely changed and transformed in prison, and we praise God and thank him for that. Hallelujah. What a, what a wonderful testimony. One of the great Christmas transformations, of course, comes from fiction, and it's the character Scrooge in The Christmas Carol, which I must say I'm very fond of. Now, there's a debate whether Charles Dickens was a Christian. And you could debate whether the Christmas carol is a Christian story. But it does seem to me to have some signs which are profoundly Christian. And I want to quote one to you. You'll remember that Scrooge's clerk is Bob Cratchit. And he lives in a very poor house, a very poor home. The number of children, and one of them is Tiny Tim, who is disabled. 
And at one point we read this, and I quote, he comes and says to his, uh, says to his wife, Bob Cratchit, somehow tiny Tim gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you have ever heard. He told me that coming home from church, he hoped that the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Christmas has the power to change and transform its message of the birth of the Saviour, the mighty Saviour, God who has come among us to redeem us. And it can change us and it can change our lives and it can change the world around us. And the song ends with Christ as the light of the world. Again, we've made reference to it in this service. From John's prologue, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And here you'll find the same truth, verses 78, 79. Because the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the paths of peace. We're in the very darkest days of the year. I thought yesterday was an extraordinarily dark day. And what a powerful symbol light is at this season of the year. And what a powerful truth it conveys when we remember Christ as the light of the world. And it seems to me that what might stop this drift from the traditional and orthodox and gospel Christmas to the celebration of a winter festival, if we embrace this light and become reflectors of this light and be agents of that true peace, peace on earth and goodwill to, whom, to men on whom his favor rests. Light is such a powerful symbol. We have it here in the Advent candles. We have it in the candles of our services this afternoon and this evening. We have it in our decorations. We might look at light and take its truth in Christ as the light of the world to reflect that light where we are and as we have opportunity. So I end with this. What are you going to remember from this sermon and from this text? Will it be this sense of outburst of joy and delight, this overwhelming sense of praise and worship to God, will we sense something of that in our Christmas and our Christmas services and activities? Or will you remember something of the confidence with which this song is, is proclaimed and sung? Something of Zechariah's confidence. He has come. He has redeemed his people. Or will you see the mighty saviour and look again to see in the little vulnerable baby of Bethlehem, the mighty saviour who goes to the cross to save us. Or will you remember the light in this passage, the theme of light that runs throughout so much of the Christmas and nativity stories. And experiencing that light for ourselves, be a light for others. My friends, let's ponder upon these things. It's a great text, and it gives us a great challenge. Let us pray. Father God, do speak to us through this word. 
Speak to each one of us what you want us to hear and equip us by your spirit as we lay hold upon your truth that we find in your word. Equip us to serve you, to serve you without fear, to serve you all our days and guide our feet into the paths of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.